This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. And my guest today is Neil Fisher of Weldworks. This episode is brought to you by craftbeer.com, home of the most powerful brewery locator in the universe. Whether you're traveling in a new city or planning your next beercation, head to craftbeer.com and explore the wide world of American craft beer. Want to support small and independent breweries? Look for the independent craft brewer seal when you search. Neil, you guys put the independent craft beer signal symbol on your uh, your, your packaging. Yeah, it was funny. We were actually perusing. I think they had published an article or something, some feature on the seal, and we saw there was a Fruity Bits pina colada crowler that had the seal on it. So I think we were one of the early ones as, as far as, like, the crowlers. Or, so I put it on our crowlers, and now it's on our cans and ends up on our bottles, too. So Well, sure. Thank you for uh, craftbeer.com sponsoring this episode, thank and uh, thank you, Neil, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, my, our history with Neil goes way back. Uh, uh, just to you know, humor me for a, a minute here as we uh, as we kind of recast this, because I also, also often get the question, uh, why, is Neil, why is Weldworks all over uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine? Um, but the story really goes back to our issue number one, uh, the very first issue of the magazine. And uh, Neil was a local home brewer and uh, an award-winning home brewer and a BJCP judge. And we put out a call to all the local homebrew clubs looking for BJCP certified judges. And, uh, and Neil answered the call. So he and uh, a, few, you know, a bunch of other homebrewers in northern Colorado became our blind review panel. And so for years, uh, uh, I guess a full year before the brewery launched. Yeah, it was a full year. Yeah. Uh, Neil sat on our review panel and, uh, and managed to... Uh, 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 challenge everyone else on, <laughs> on the panel with his palate. Uh, there came to a point where we, we couldn't even announce in some of the categories what the beers were after we reviewed them because uh, through process of elimination, <laughs> Neil would uh, independently identify blindly what that beer was and then be able to guess what future ones might be. And uh, you know, and so that was a moment where he knew Neil had had some brewing skills here and in uh, a highly refined palate. Um, yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, article about his basement uh, home, uh, barrel projects were in the very first issue of the magazine, and that played a part in you guys uh, your pitch for funding for the brewery. Even yep, we included that little uh, that I don't know three page article, some pictures of the basement. That was kind of at the end of our business plan and pitch to investors. It was all included there, so it was it's good to give us some credibility before we opened uh, to have you know craft beer and brewing doc, you know article right there about barrel aging for home brewers so so we go way back and it was yep. really exciting for us to see neil launches brewery um that first year was a interesting uh, kind of you know get feet under you kind of experience um but let's talk a little bit about what that where that change came because after that that first year you launched with some pretty standard beers you know you had your brown ale you had your hefeweizen uh you know you had a, a west coast ipa that was you know pretty standard west coast ipa not a bad beer but just you know pretty normal yeah we i mean we had kind of the the basic formula that i think almost you know 75 percent of breweries two three even five years ago opened with you need an ipa you need a wheat you need something malty and you need something kind of in the middle and so that's kind of where our our lineup started um and we just happened to have success with the hefeweizen so that it's kind of luck that we we chose a style that one was popular but also two that we were proficient at brewing and so 
Um, but then since then we've pivoted in lots of different directions and now we're probably known more for uh, New England style IPA and adjunct stouts. So. Now you're canning and selling four pack straight out of the brewery and uh, you know, very different model. <laughs> barrel barrel aged releases uh, again on ticketed type of uh, type of sales. Um, and there was that, but there was that moment around that first anniversary, and I remember it well because we were here for that first anniversary brunch, where all of a sudden you had this new beer called Juicy Bits, and uh, and that seemed to be well and at the same time or, or shortly after the the Medianoche barrel aged beers. Yeah. And that moment, that that one year point, seemed to be kind of uh, you know a pivotal moment for the brewery. Um, that, that kind of kick-started this much more fast growth phase. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think it's really equally Juicy Bits and Medi Noche. Medi Noche had been in the tanks since we opened, so we knew we were making a barrel-aged stout. I mean, obviously from my homebrew background, that was kind of what I loved focusing on. And <clears throat> so we, we built our barrel program, or started our barrel program pretty much the, the week we opened the tap room. So we got beer into barrels right away. So at our one-year anniversary, we finally had Medianoche ready, but at the same time, we decided, hey, why not try this, you know, this hazy-looking uh, New England-style IPA that um, you, in particular, you and uh, my buddy Adam um, had been really kind of pushing, like, hey, you guys should really try this really softer bitterness. And I think for a long time, I had, you know, obviously had had the Alchemist stuff and um, even these things, you know, the, the Treehouse Trilliums that were out, you know, coming out pretty popular at the time. Um, I hadn't had a lot of those. So I think exposure from, you know, from you and Adam and other friends just saying, Hey, these are different beers. These are very, like very different than your average IPA. I was pretty sold after a few of those and just seeing how unique they were. So we wanted it was to- pure selfishness on my <laughs> yeah. part, just wanting to what have a, a, local a local brewery making, you know, and making a really nice, uh, soft, hazy New England style IPA. Yeah. I, I think if it weren't for you and Adam, we probably would never have even tried it, but I think, uh, yeah, I think both great of other those- brewers are going to now blame, blame me in part <laughs> just, for this. Yep. Yep. Ja- Jamie and Adam, they probably get co <laughs> co billing for, for juicy bits. Um, but yeah, I think we, yeah, we. I mean, we obviously pivoted at that point. We didn't really anticipate that style in particular, IPA, New England style IPA, to, to be our our linchpin for growth along with barrel-aged stouts. I mean, we knew we wanted to focus on barrel-aged stouts. We didn't really know how we'd compete in the market or how our beer would be kind of received compared to some of the best. Um, and obviously since then, you know, winning a gold at GABF means we're doing something right. Um, so, you know, we're not. we're still making some classic styles we've done you know, a grisette, a half, uh, we kept the half on, we've done some other wheat beers, we've done some pilsners and other lagers. And, um, I think even this year we're focusing a bit more on some basic styles that we may have lost in the last year. So, you know, obviously the first year we started off with a very approachable lineup and then the last, you know, the second year we were much more on that ambitious side. And then this year we're kind of bringing in both. So it's one thing to say, Hey, let's make a hazy IPA. And there's a lot of breweries out there doing that. It's another thing to make a hazy IPA that captures that, that, is so clean and balanced uh, that has such a distinct point of view that uh, that is really clear and and has a a, a very specific intent to it. Um, how did how did you go through and and uh, you know how, tell me about that formative process for something like Juicy Bits um, and how you decided what you wanted it to be and how you executed to get it there. Yeah, I mean we we obviously tried a bunch. We probably spent I think it was maybe in earnest October, maybe that we really tried to track down as many of those examples as we could from any producer, not just the new England area, but anyone in the U S making a, a hazy or, you know, whatever you want to call the style, a, a softer, juicier IPA. So we tried, I would say this is what 20, uh, it had been the end of 2014 or end of 2015 yeah. coming into yeah. 2016. 
Um, so obviously it's a very different landscape now. It seems so long ago. <laughs> it does yeah, seem, it's yeah. what, two years? Two years, yeah. and we are now seeing it's the biggest style in the country by far, I think. And, you know, that was kind of the, the discussion at the end of last year. Now this year it's, it's not even a question of it's just, you know, how long does it last, I think. Um, so, yeah, we've probably tried 20, 25 examples and got a really good understanding of uh, a little bit of the style itself, what makes it unique, what makes it special, what makes it different than your average West Coast IPA or even just, you know, East Coast IPA. And once we understood that, we, we knew we didn't want to just clone a beer. You know, if, if I could I, or if, you know, if we wanted to, we would have just tried to clone, you know, Julius is one of my favorites. I think it was just a really well-executed Julius version. from Treehouse Brewing. Yep. I think that was probably the beer that for me was the, the turning point. That was... Uh, just a fantastic beer. I think Nate and the team at Treehouse have just done a great job dialing in those IPAs. So, I mean, they're they're for us a, a huge influence. But um, we didn't want to make that. We didn't want to make Trillium's beers. We didn't want to make you know even some of the others that we had been trying from other hands and tired ha- or t- tired hands and other half. Um, uh, so we didn't want to just make another you know copy of someone else's beer. Everybody, I think that's why we like the style so much. Everyone has a perspective. Uh, some of those perspectives aren't as clear, and I think that's where we saw an opportunity for us to have. A, a bit more of a, um, a distinguishing voice in the in the crowded marketplace that was, you know, IPA. There was New England style IPA, which is not nearly as crowded. But I think even there, we saw an opportunity to bring in a little bit less bitterness, um, maybe even more hops. So I think our, our hop rates are probably on the high to, you know, higher end of the average at you know probably five to seven pounds per barrel is our average hop usage on on New England style IPAs, um, not just for excess, but because of the way we make them. We really, really load those in the Whirlpool and, and dry hop and very little, if any. Um, mostly none of our beers have kettle additions. So it really relies more on the hop character. And so to balance it, even though we don't have the bitterness to balance, we have this massive hop character. And that's kind of the MO we started with and, and also more fruit forward. You know, it's definitely, you know, the name is is kind of, you know, ind- indicative of the flavor, a little bit more of that juice, you know, orange juice, pineapple juice, tropical fruit juice. Um, that's kind of what we're going for. And you've even uh, tailored the the malt bill so that it has a, a, that tinge of orange color to it. Yep, we definitely dialed in the color. You know, obviously <clears throat> with the kind of turbidity and the opaqueness, there's some, you know, you have to factor that into when the finished product, what it looks like, you know, because you're, when you're mashing, it's, it's going to be different than when you have a bunch of, you know, polyphenol haze or hop haze or even a little bit of yeast and, or whatever is causing all that haze, it changes the appearance. So we've definitely dialed it in, you know, before it was a little bit, almost a little lighter and this didn't have quite as much of that like orange juice looking kind of um, appearance. So we, we kind of like that both for the flavor and for the appearance of our beer. Um, we obviously, you know, venture away a little bit from that Juicy Bits prototype. You know, we've done a lot of variants of Juicy Bits, but We've also done a lot of beers like, uh, you know, Space Cowboy we're releasing tomorrow is a very different take on still a Weldworks IPA, but it's not, you know, I wouldn't say it's a bits inspired variation. Um, I'm drinking one now. It's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. It's always fun to get you these Galaxy. You had me a Galaxy. Yeah. yeah. Galaxy is kind of the, the home run all, all the time, but it was fun to knowing that we we're going to use Galaxy. How can we give it a different, just we've done Galaxy DDH juicy bits, which is a different beer than this too. So. Yeah, I, th- I, I think I'm most proud of for what we've done. Like we've, I think we do a really good job executing IPAs. But like you said, we're proud of the fact that we do have a little bit of a different kind of vantage point that we're trying to present. So, so as you're going through and kind of working through these ideas, um, you know, what was your process? How do you reverse engineer this? How do you figure out? Um, because at the time, there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of resources out there. The folks that were making these beers, you know, they they made them their way, but they weren't necessarily 
telling folks what they were doing uh, and giving other people a roadmap to make their own. No. So figuring out yeast usage, figuring out water chemistry, uh, you know, figuring out the the you know hopping methods, when to add hops, dry hop regimens. I mean, this was that was still the wild west back then, and and you had to do a lot of of testing, a lot of trial and error. Yeah, we did. You know, I mean, I, honestly, we didn't even get to do as much testing as we did just um, more research. I think you know we didn't we didn't do a you know the first batch of juicy bits was the one we ported at our one year anniversary, um, so there was no pilot batch. We had a pilot system at the time, but we didn't have the time to run it, um, and so it was a fifteen barrel test patch. Um, and yeah, I don't think we did a thirty barrel for the first one, but. We had just done, a, I mean, really the research we did was mostly, um, Are you kidding me? That was the first, <laughs> that was the very, oh, the very, yeah. The one we poured at the anniversary was the bruise everywhere. Uh, <laughs> really hating you right now. <laughs> well, we, but to be, to be honest, that research started in October, November. So from October, November till March of 2016, it, you know, we, if we were smarter and had more time, we probably would have spent that time brewing test batches, but we were more focused on the understanding um, but we did, uh, we, d- I mean, honestly, most of it was homebrew forums or, you know, that was yeah. the majority of the discussions about making these styles was on the homebrew. So whether it was, you know, forum here or there or Facebook group or something, that's where the majority of the discussion was happening at the time about, you know, water chemistry. Um, but then we even extrapolated it away from the style and understanding like even haze stability was a huge component for us because we've, we've suffered from, well, suffered from, from batches going clear. You know, sure. we had that happen. We dropped bright. It's a terrible problem to have. It doesn't taste I, I don't the same wish that if it's upon, not yeah, easy. of course not. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's anecdotal whether it's, it's different or not, but. So what did you settle on in, in terms of, uh, you know, how do you maintain that kind of haze? And I think, I think there's a common misconception, you know, with, with, uh, New England style IPAs that uh, they're just full of yeast and that yeast is providing the haze. But uh, you're actively trying to pull all the yeast out of those yep. beers. If, I, if it were up to us, we would have you know zero cells per, per milliliter in uh, yeast counts in all of our finished IPAs. It's a lot harder to do that here when we don't have a centrifuge or some other, you know, some other equipment that would make that easier. But that does mean we, we cold condition a little bit longer. We are very, you know, especially in the fermenter, we're very intentional about dropping that flocking as much of the yeast out before it moves on to the um, either this, the last round of dry hops or even into the bright um, and it means extended conditioning time so um, we've had beers from you know breweries that are packaging them in 10 days and they, they're great but they're different and we just have decided for both haze stability flavor stability and just overall drinking experience we like a little bit longer conditioning time to drop as much yeast as possible but relying more on the mostly the protein and uh, especially hot polyphenols for the haze so I would say, you know, 75% of our, if not more, of the haze in our IPAs is derived either from the protein or hops um, and not necessarily from the yeast. So what do you do to lock that in? You know, here at, uh, at, uh, we've done, so Alphabets is a beer we brew with Sleeping Giant. Um, they're a contract brewery in Denver, and they have a centrifuge, which has made the process a little easier with them. So um, we've been able to, using a centrifuge, we've been able to basically change the speed we run the um, centrifuge at for the tank versus the cone. So we'll run the cone separate from the tank, the, the, uh, the rest of the tank, knowing that the majority of the yeast is in that cone. So we'll run that um, at a speed that basically drops more out, knowing that the majority of the, the solids are yeast in that part of the, the tank. And then we'll basically blend that back uh, with the second run of the rest of the tank with a centrifuge to a target turbidity. Um, and then the last two cans we did of those, they were at a, I think a cell count was was zero cells per milliliter, per milliliter in the can. So literally no yeast in the can, but still fa- fairly hazy. Not nearly as turbid as some of the ones we've done 
Um, and just by nature of, you know, when you're doing that big a batch and you're centrifuging, you're going to drop some more out. Um, but it was much more stable here at the brewery. We really focus on, on flocking the yeast and harvesting it, um, for the next batch. So we are able to reuse it, which presents a challenge when you're dry hopping early. Um, but we're just very intentional about making sure we flock as much yeast as we can before our second and third dry hop. Usually the first one we can't, you know, we can't flock cause it's still active fermentation, but um, but we've done a lot to try and just understand how this yeast works. It's the London Ale 3, 13, 18. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not a super aggressive flocker, but it will flock under the right conditions. And even just knowing when to, um, spun the tank and close, you know, close valves and build up a little bit of head pressure, just triggers a little bit quicker flock. Um, just dropping even a degree or two kind of lets it know once you're past, you know, VDK rests and everything, Hey, it's time to, time to move on. We're, we're, we're making room for hops. And, and, and I think we've just kind of gotten to understand this yeast strain a lot more. Whereas first few batches, we would have, you know, a lot more clumping, a lot more settling in the cans and, or crowlers or bottles or whatever, or I guess growlers, not never growlers, but always crowlers for juicy bits. But we, um, I think now we understand better a little bit of, of how we can keep it more stable in the can. Um, and I, I, I don't know that we can even definitively say that haze makes a huge impact on either mouthfeel, hop character, but we know just, you know, aesthetically when, when we drink it, it's a different experience. So consumers are the same way. So can't fault anybody for wanting it to appear aesthetically one way, but it's also not our goal. So it's just kind of a part of the process. But I do think if, you know, if that's going to be a part of your process, ensuring better haze stability and rather than clumping in the cans and, um, you know, that's sometimes that's unavoidable, but you know, if you can avoid it, I think just from a, everyone's going to pour it into a glass at some point. So the less floaties, the less kind of solid clumps you have coming out, the better kind of experience you're going to have on the consumer side. For sure. It's a funny thing where better looking now means, uh, uh solidly hazy yeah, uniform, <laughs> but without, without those clumps. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, you mentioned a second ago, your first dry hop, uh, happening before your yeast flocks out, which tells me, you know, you're, you're dry hopping before you hit a terminal gravity. Um, biotransformation, certainly a big buzzword. Uh, I imagine you've, you've tried it both ways. Uh, what's the difference that you get out of dry hopping, you know, before you've reached terminal gravity, while that yeast is still active, versus uh, the more traditional process of waiting until after you've already you know hit that gravity. You know, I think in the in the professional beer community right now, I think hops are one of the the things that we're trying to understand more of. It seems like that's the top of everyone's list right now is is research, especially dry hopping rates. At the where we're at now, we've seen some new papers that are pretty groundbreaking on dry hop bitterness. Um, even dry hop um, attenuation. And, you know, I know Allagash and Jason worked with OSU to do that study on basically increased attenuation from dry hopping. Um, it's just, they've discovered it was enzymes that were, you know, an additional enzyme kind of charge that would help even attenuate a, um, like Coors Light. They were dry hopping finished, hmm. um, or maybe Coors, I can't remember which lager it was, but some very, very stable terminal gravity lager and just a small dry hop and then. Uh, they were able to referment almost a full, I think, half Play-Doh down. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, and, and so they, I think Allagash noticed that in white. I think especially they were seeing these uh, diacetyl blooms and some bottles and things. And so they led that study. And that, I think that was just the tip of the iceberg. Now I think the next big topic beyond just dry hop bitterness and, you know, we're talking about IBUs now a lot more um, and whether they're relevant, which, you know, in my opinion, not right now the way we measure them, but how can we figure out a better metric? I think the next thing is biotransformation because I don't think anyone has done any analytical 
um, study on biotransformation, to give any quantitative data, to give anything that's sure, you know, sure. definitive, like, yes, this is happening. So, I mean, I think there's definitely... Anecdotally a, speaking. Anecdotally. And I think, I think I would say that, you know, I'm still in the camp of uncertainty. I do think it makes a difference based on just your mechanical action. You've got more hops moving around and you're in an oxygen deprivant environment too. That's the other benefit to doing it then versus mm -hmm. post-fermentation. Every time you dry hop, you're going to add some oxygen. So I think, I think that is a big factor too, that you're just, you got a little bit of fermentation still happening. So you're not quite scrubbing all the aromatics, but you're keeping those hops mostly in solution. So you're getting pretty good extraction that way. You're also doing it under, you know, very, very little oxygen. And eventually that oxygen is getting scrubbed out anyway. Um, so I think that gives you that brighter hop character, but we do notice, especially Citra, we notice if we do everything terminal versus during fermentation, uh, that Citra addition just goes from like a really nice kind of grapefruity to this more tangerine, sweeter, almost candy-like hop character. And so that's anecdotally for me, I'd, I'd say that maybe there's some other biotransformation happening with the yeast. Um, we don't have definitive data yet, but I even think it's varietal specific. I think certain varietals are, hmm. you know, interact with yeast different than others. Um, I've noticed a bigger change in Citra than I have in our mosaic. Um, I don't see a lot of difference in the, you know, the mid dry hop fermentation, just, you know, the difference in the character we're pulling out versus the post fermentation. I don't get as much of that almost transformative character as I do in the Citra. So I, I wish I knew more about what was at work, but um, I, th I do think that for New England style IPAs in particular, it seems like that's a pretty big common practice is to do early to mid dry hop for, um, uh, or fermentation dry hop additions. And I think that is kind of a little bit of why we're seeing a difference in character in these beers. So um, I think it's even a little bit less vegetal, maybe because it has a little bit more time. Um, those late dry hop additions, especially like a day or two before you're moving on to packaging or anything, those I think can be a little bit harsher. Same reason first word hopping is a little different. It's just a little bit more time for those to either, you know, change or soften, soften. You have a little bit more conditioning time after the fact as well. So have you tried pitching uh, with your yeast and uh, or dry hopping with your yeast pitch? We did. We did a zero bits, um, which was a, uh, kind of a, uh, we did a seminar up at Big Beers with New Belgium and Cerebral and Outer Range. And just basically to understand more about this dry hop bitterness phenomenon we're all seeing of actually adding stable bitterness to a beer just from dry hops, no isomerization. And so with that beer, we moved the entire dry hop uh, whirlpool load into the fermenter. So we did nothing in the hot side, no, beer, no hops uh, in the first wort, no hops um, at whirlpool. Everything was in the fermenter um, after we were already at knockout temp. So we actually filled the fermenter before we, we uh, knocked out into it. We filled it with that entire 20 to 30 or actually probably 40 pound load of hops. Um, that we normally use in the Whirlpool. And so it fermented the entire time with it. Um, unfortunately, we don't have that beer on tap anymore, but um, it was a really fun experiment to see, not just the no bitterness. I or, had some last week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I think we just kicked it this week. Um, but it was fun to see just the difference in the hop character from yeah. that kind of, and that's a lot of interaction, probably a lot of scrubbing too. Did you all run any kind of sensory testing to see what uh, what folks might have, in a, in a blind way, perceived the IBU load to be on that? We, we did a little bit. Um, we did it with a small group of us, and then we, I think New Belgium might have even done some too with their sensory. And, um, you know, the, the, the guesses were all much lower than Juicy Bits, but still well above what we expected, closer to 40 IBUs was about what everyone's kind of, you know, yeah. sensory guesses were. And um, the, the, you know, the test that came back with, uh, from New Belgium, they did both um, isomerized and basically total alpha acid or total alpha bitterness. Uh, was around 75 IB or 75 IBUs to 80 IBUs, 
Um, and that was based on, they did both um, mass spectrometry, mass spectrophotometry, <laughs> mass spec testing, um, and then they also did um, HPLC or QPLC to basically get an idea of what the, uh, you know, two different tests, one for isomerized, which surprisingly came back at almost five IBUs of isomerized alpha acidiness. <laughs> Even though there was no ear No, at all. yeah, we're, wow. we're uh, wow. I think Ross at New Belgium is still trying to figure that one out because they saw the same thing on their tests and trials. Yeah. Our two guesses are either it was a sensor uh, or the prepping the samples, maybe enough heat in yeah. that process, or which is more likely is the actual pelletization process. Mm. It uh, imparts enough heat for isomerization. So, you know, that's that, that alone, that study right there could tell you like you can add five IBUs of bitterness without of isomerized alpha acid bitterness <laughs> just by dry hopping. Yeah, so yeah. Um, th the fact that we don't know that, we sure, don't know why, sure, sure. tells you that we're really on the cusp of understanding hops a lot more in the next decade than we do now. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's it's a fun thing not knowing everything about uh, what's happening because uh, it gives us more space to move in and uh, and more things to understand. Um, no, that's that's absolutely um, fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. I, I, the the small things for me in that study were what I I'm super excited about. Like, where are we going to go from here on how we communicate bitterness to? I mean, consumers. We we removed IBUs from every single beer. We don't. We even really? deleted them from beers that we had kind of guessed on before. Because we realized it's net, it's now more about balance, and so mm -hmm. even a, a, a technically a hundred IBU beer can still taste like forty to fifty IBUs if you've balanced it with sure um, you know malt character and backbone, and that's I think that's where the New England style really distinguishes itself. It's really not bitterness focused, but it's balance focused, and you know whether it is a more bitter example or a less bitter example like ours, they're both very very balanced compared to your average you know West Coast palate wrecking. No, that's a. I mean, that's a fantastic point that uh, our perception of beer does not necessarily track to the metrics that beer tests out at. Right. That um, you know that if a brewer is doing their job, then that extra residual sweetness that might be in a beer could counteract some of that bitterness, um, you know, and some of that that body, some of you know, uh, you know other uh, you know characteristics of the beer. Um, and there's no real way to quantify what that sensory impact is other than to trust the brewer is not going to beat you over the head with something uh, insane unless they tell you that it's absolutely insane. Yeah. And I think that's where we're in a tough point now. I understand why consumers want to know IBUs, but what they don't realize is that the IBUs, even for a classic West coast style are no longer relevant because we're seeing dry hop rates that are so high that we're, um, you know, the other interesting thing about these papers is you can actually knock isomerized alpha acids out of solution from dry hopping. So you can actually bring right, right. bring IBUs that were technically stable and drop them. So at certain dry hop rates, you can bring your bitterness down, and at higher ones, you can replace all those or even add oxidized alpha acids. So you know, even a, a beer that's typically at 75 IBUs is dry hopped, you know, moderately will actually come down to closer to 60. So I think, the, you know, we're just using a great article about that <laughs> in craft beer and brewing magazine, last year's IPA issue written by Stan Hieronymus. Just, oh, just Stan, quick Stan, plug. Yeah. I mean, Stan's <laughs> got some, I, I think a lot of that is what we're seeing now is that right. even breweries that aren't doing New England style are going to benefit from some of the research. I know, you know, modern times is a big leader in that they're one of the, probably the biggest producers of the style until, you know, now we've got new Belgium's got a, a version out. Um, I know Sierra Nevada's got a version out. So hopefully as more of these bigger breweries kind of take it on the style, we'll see some better actual data. So I'm excited. I think we're really on the, I mean, it sounds like, you know, such a cliche, like we're on the, the next frontier of hops, but we really are, I think, on a better understanding. It's not going to change a whole lot of what we do, but we'll better understand it. So help us improve our beers. 
Well, I think that's a good thing for even for consumers to understand. You know, one, they only care about IBUs because the industry told them they should care about exactly. IBUs. And so we can, you know, let's change the way we uh, we talk about that kind of thing, and and we'll change what consumers care about. Um, you know, the other piece is that uh, you're right. We are on the cusp of what's happening in hops and understanding this really, you know, key raw ingredient. Um, you know, if you look back, you know, six or seven years. Hops like Citra uh, were just a you know blip on the new radar that uh, you know very few people were using them and somehow we've gone from that kind of blip to now 2017 crop where you know over six million pounds of Citra was harvested. Um, I mean that's an amazing spin up for a hop like that in a, in the course of five Unreal. or six years. Uh, I mean just just absolutely incredible. And if you go back to that kind of 2010 time period, also um, the number of, of brewers that were actively engaged with grow hops growers. Um, was incredibly small. You know, I, I mean, you know, you go. I was out in Yakima last year, talking to some of them. Like, you know, back in 2010, I mean, the number of, bre- of brewers that came out to walk the fields, to do hop selection. Uh, I mean, you know, you were talking about less than a hundred, um, probably. I mean, total people coming out for that, and now it's well into the several thousands oh, and every brewer that could possibly do it. Uh, uh, in fact, my number of hundreds might even be high. It was probably less than 50 brewer, you know, oh, yeah. uh, brewers that, that would go out at the time and do that. Uh, really just the big guys, you know, the biggest folks that would send their, their folks out there. And now every brewer, as soon as they possibly can hit the thresholds that the major, uh, uh, you know, growers and, and brokers, you know, put out there for going out to do hop selection. I mean, they're, they're there in a heartbeat because having that kind of engagement with the raw materials and being able to 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 you know select through those materials right then and there i mean that's it's an incredibly powerful thing and you just went out last year for uh, for your first hop selection right yeah it was it was an amazing experience and i think like you said it was it was the fact i think the brokers have brought that minimum down to make it a bit more approachable for small breweries you know it, i saw that uh, the, one of the brokers in particular has now brought that minimum down to you know, like anything you order yeah, so pretty, like two, 200 pounds or something yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah which is crazy but i think it does like you said it's it gives you that uh that next level of of kind of hands-on and and really that next level of distinction from you know not all citra is equal um i think that's what we've realized too even just now starting to use our, our 2017 crop from citra mosaic el dorado a couple others we've got on contract that we've selected um our citra this year is just drastically different than what we were using last year and um you know it's it's i think it's better but it, it's also different it's um so we were able to even go out even knowing what our profile is knowing you know, it's a lot easier for us now knowing the direction we're going with our IPAs, which are much more fruit forward and a lot more, you know, we're not looking for as much just huge, just bitterness and kind of even hop, you know, assertiveness. We're looking for more fruit complexity in those hops and we're looking for almost juiciness. Um, and so it was fun to go out and try and like, I really love this citra. It's amazing. Got a really nice kind of dankness to it, a little bit more of like a bit of grounding, not just, just tropical fruit, not just citrus, but we want more just tropical fruit and citrus for what we're doing at Weldwork. So it was cool to be able to select that lot. And now we're seeing how that's impacted our beer. You know, we did a Citra basic bits. We did a Citra DDH juicy bits that both use those, that new crop year. And it's, uh, it's just made a, a, given us a little bit more competitive edge, I think in the marketplace to have our own lot selected based on the, the SKUs we want to make gives us one more layer of kind of intentionality in the way we design recipes. One of the benefits you have as a small brewer is that, uh, you know, you can, 
uh, opposed to a larger brewer that's trying to maintain brand standards and an expectation for for that recipe as it initially stood is that uh, you can quickly pivot like that and if you want to make juicy bits with uh, your new citra crop that might not be exactly like the old one but it gives you more of what you really want out of it you can do that or yeah. you can just make new beers out of it yeah. and uh, you know and roll out a new uh, you know, thing and that's a that's a challenge that uh, some of the the bigger brewers actually face that uh, you know and I want to talk to Wayne from Cigar City he was talking about that like when we go to hop selection we're looking for a very specific uh, character uh, you know for this hop and you know others might actually taste or smell better or more exciting or more interesting but we need this in order for it to be just like the beer that we made before right and there's you know when you're talking about large-scale production and expectation for consumers that's certainly a thing right um, but when you're a brewery your size you certainly can also um, get people excited about the potential change in that yeah and I think I mean we've even learned to use that to our advantage and you know we, we did a lot of new beers last year we have plans this year is the uh, the goal is 100 new beers 100 new SKUs for 2018 which is um you know we're what a month in now and we've we did i think nine or ten new beers this year this month already <laughs> um but it's fun because i think like you said we we have that kind of pivot ability we got that flexibility we've got the agility to to be able to okay we're gonna do this one beer that we may make again we may not um, but we can bring in a really exciting one-off hop or we can use our current hop and complement it with something else or um, it gives us a lot of flexibility. It does present a lot of challenges. It's its sure, own set of sure. challenges, but and, you know, from not just the production side, but also the sales side, trying to, to build a portfolio of rotators and seasonals and one-offs. Um, and I know that, you know, we're part of the problem of creating more and more seasonals and rotators and one-offs, which the industry, you know, has mixed feelings on. Is it a problem though? <clears throat> I, mean, I mean, I think, I think from a business perspective, certain folks in the business who wanted to operate the way it's always operated may look at that as a problem and fair enough, you know, right. compared to the way it's always been and what that business as usual is, yes, that's different. You know, the stores have a harder time adapting to that. Um, you know, the, the sales processes, the historical sales processes of rep and handles and whatnot have a harder time dealing with that. But if you put it, if you look at it from a consumer perspective, your consumers, those that are attracted to craft beer, the people that like to buy your beer, they like those new experiences. Those new experiences are one of the reasons that they get attracted to a brewery and one of the reasons they keep coming back and buying beer over and over again because they want some sort of new and exciting experience. And so in some ways, I mean, if you hate on that, you are hating on the entire mentality of craft beer consumers that led them to the sector in the first place. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if you're looking at it strictly from a consumer's perspective, it, it's absolutely great. You know, it's as long as the breweries can execute on that. That's, the, that's I think, sure, the real challenge sure. is that, you know, a lot of breweries do struggle to bring in, you know, four new beers every two months because they're just not doing the consistency. That's been a challenge for us. You know, if we do a one-off, we basically have one chance to make it good and we don't have two or three or four versions to get it better. Um, but that just really means overall, we just need to be better at brewing everything, not just one style. Um, but obviously it translates, you know, the more we know about Juicy Bits, the easier it is to make Space Cowboy. You know, we understand a lot more about our system, about the way we design recipes. You know, so we're incorporating all that knowledge we're gaining from a beer like Juicy Bits that we're on, you know, batch 80 or something like that, something crazy. And we incorporate all that knowledge into the next batch we do. So, you know, the, the one-off we do this month is is good. And it might even, you know, the next one-off might even be better because it benefits from what we learned in this one. So um, I think from, like you said, consumers, if you really look at a consumer's perspective, yeah, absolutely. That's, it's exciting. That's why I think craft beer is 
challenge big beer because it's exciting and different. So I think you're right. There's, you know, from the business perspective and from like a, a bigger brewery perspective, especially, this is not a really fun model to go after a hundred new SKUs in a year. But as, as, as a brewery like us, like it's fun for our guys too. I mean, every week is something different and, you know, we'll, we'll always get the, we, we get, people all the time calling us out for being gimmicky, which is totally understandable. I, I don't begrudge that. Um, you play into that a little bit <laughs> yeah, too. Absolutely. For sure. We, we lean into it, but we also like, I think we always come back to intentionality. So if we're going to do it, we want to make sure it's intentional. Um, so, but it also means it's a fun place to work. It's a fun place to brew because this week we might be making a Keller pills or we might be doing, you know, something very classic. Um, even our, you know, we're bringing back steam barrel. We'll do a West coast style tomorrow. Actually we're brewing. Oh. Steam Barrel 3.0 yeah. um, and bringing that one back. But then next week, I think we're doing a tiramisu blonde stout. So I, I've got a bunch of lady fingers uh, in route and uh, <sighs> cocoa powder, espresso. What else? Ooh, even uh, I think we're using condensed milk in this one. So going beyond the it's going, lactose 2.0, I it's guess. Full, full pastry, huh? Full on pastry. Yeah. Um, would you bring up a good point? And I think that's the counterpoint to what I just said. As much as consumers want a new experience all the time, um, there's no denying that brewers get better at brewing a beer the more times that they make it. Definitely. And this is why, you know, core brands for most brewers tend to be more well executed, more technically proficient, you know, more spot on. And that, you know, the more times you iterate, the more you know, things you learn about brewing that beer and the better you get at it. And that's why some of the big macro beers are uh, absolutely as precise and consistent and uh, well crafted as they are. Because when you make that beer for, for decades, you know, you get really, really good at making that one beer. You know, and the, the counterpoint to that is the one-off collaborations, um, which get you know get exciting from a marketing perspective, can sometimes be some of the most disappointing beers that a brewery might make because it's the first time they've brewed it, they're brewing something different, they're combining two different ideas together, and so you don't always end up with something as successful as it could be. But I, uh, you know, what you said resonates with me, that idea of creating new beers that are based on other beers so that you're not reinventing the wheel every time you are creating a new experience, but you're building it off of a base that you've already iterated on and you've already, uh, you know, built some development towards. Uh, and so it's not reinventing the wheel every time. It's, uh, you know, changing some things and changing some ingredients and uh, trying some new hops or, you know, something, but still building on that same kind of base. Yeah, we. I mean, if we were trying to, you know, just brand new style we've never done every single week, I mean, that I think would not necessarily work. I, I think you. I think even as a small brewery, you have to have some basis for, like you said, just getting better at a single way of making it or a single style. Like even our blonde stout, we we did one blonde stout so far, and we didn't want to commit to doing a bunch more, but we had a lot of ideas that just work better in a lighter style than they would a, a dark stout. You know, they're some lighter pastries that we want to really, you know, <laughs> talking <laughs> tiramisu, we're talking, you know, baklava, you know, all these things that are really not chocolatey at all. So how do we, so we needed a prototype. So that was the white chocolate cinnamon chai latte we did. And that was not even pastry, but more, you know, coffee shop. But now that we have that kind of base that I thought was really well executed, we know now how we can, you know, how can we bring in these other flavors but we have a starting point. And so the next blonde stout will probably be even better executed than the last one. And then, you know, keep going on, even though the beers are changing, there's something I think core to that of even just the, the basic understanding of how to make it that if, if you're just starting from scratch every time, I think it's going to be tough to, to get really good at making beer. 
Let's talk about these pastry beers for a moment because, uh, um, you know, depending on who you talk to, they're either uh, it's the end of craft beer or it's the most exciting thing going. Um, you know, what brought you to it and what do you think it is about the, the nature of these dessert beers, these beers that are based on culinary flavors that uh, that resonate with consumers and make them so exciting to, to people? Because, I mean, undoubtedly, I mean, people buy a lot of these beers. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's not quite as, I don't think it's quite the level of fervor that the New England style IPAs are, but it's not far behind. It's, it's definitely, a, I mean, it's almost become its own style. I think, I think don't, I think don't drink beer probably is the, the main culprit for growing the popularity within the brewing community. I think it was almost, that's how we saw it. You know, we saw the pastry stout hashtag. So just making fun of it has made it more oh, popular. Absolutely. For me, at least I, I love, I love championing something that everyone like something really like the Patriots. Everyone hates the Patriots. I'm a, kind of a Patriots fan this weekend because <laughs> I love that. Every, I mean, obviously a lot of, a lot of people love them yeah. too, but if, yeah. if you tell me you hate something, I want to go and like I'm, it. I'm betting on the Patriots. Yeah. I'm, I can't say I'm a fan. Yeah, I think but, Tom Brady's uh, going to get another ring, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, for me, it was just this unique, uh, I think it, it went from, I mean, it's, there's certainly an air of, of a potential for gimmick. And I, you know, I, I, I don't even like the term gimmick. It's more fun. Like, okay, does it have to, everything have to be extremely, you know, relevant to the beer? Like does adding sugar cones to the mash tun really impart a lot of flavor in the finished product? Probably not a whole lot. If we're being completely honest, Choco Taco Stout <laughs> was a really fun beer to make, but I don't think the 200 sugar cones we added to the mash tun really translated a lot into the can. Yeah. But it was the intentionality of like we want to make a great Instagram picture. Great from Instagram. It. We did get some some don't drink beer. Uh, I think hate hate, hate which slash is, love. Yeah, I think all more. <laughs> All, uh, Any press all is good press, press is good press for sure. But I think honestly, for us, why we latched onto it and really focused on it is because I, you know, we we've always used adjuncts. You know, even our, our very first one of our first beers we opened with was our coffee stout. Um, one of four beers we opened with, we didn't open with a regular stout. So I've always been drawn to adjuncts and how you can enhance brewing that way. But pastry stouts almost border beyond that and what happens when you bring in a bunch of other things that you're not used to using and how does that impact your flavor you know lactose is one thing what about condensed milk you know that's a whole different challenge that we're trying to face or um, you know what happens when we're um, doing espresso beer but we're doing it in a very very like lighter way than we've done in the past and we're almost looking at do we do an espresso finish in the keg you know just a powder instead of on the beans something that could you know integrate over time but not necessarily extract as much or you know if we're even talking white chocolate you know we had, we had a bunch of white chocolate to the boil are we seeing that in the finished flavor um a lot of it we don't know we'll we'll <laughs> guess and check um but I, I like the intent i like the intentionality of experience i think i like that's what i like most about pastry stouts when you say baklava or you say you know um tiramisu or you say black force cake you know those people know those desserts they know they have probably a childhood memory attached to that choco tacos the same way like you know running around in the summer finding the food the ice cream truck that has you know choco tacos and with your friends like everyone has something that ties them to food i think especially and so to tie that to something as fun as you know dessert why not i, th I think you know for us it's always if we're going to call it something like a black forest cake stout which we're releasing for valentine's we want to make sure it has a lot of chocolate and a lot of cherry and you know so that bringing those two together we could call a lot of different things but why not bring it into that more culinary kind of chef experience or even you know pastry experience instead of just it's just a cherry chocolate stout now, there's always a danger in that though you know if it uh, because consumers as they buy that beer have an expectation that if you call it german chocolate cake stout 
that it's gonna it's gonna have those flavors in it. You know, sure. if they taste it, and it's like oh, this doesn't taste like German chocolate, you know, cake. Then, uh, um, I mean, you're setting yourself up for some some you know pretty harsh untapped reviews. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that's even French toast and some of the others we've done. We have to make sure, like you know, some of them we start off saying they're gonna be X pastry, and really it's more like this pastry, and so we end up changing the name. Um, and if we call out an ingredient, it's usually because we can pick it up. You know, even if we. I guess allergies are another reason why you'd call out an ingredient. But if we say we used cinnamon and you can't really get any cinnamon, probably just leave that off the descriptor. I mean, <laughs> even if you did use it, even if you used it, I don't know why you'd put that in there. Because, like you said, as a consumer, right. yeah. I mean, even as a beer judge, you do that. You, you know, at GABF, I remember having some really good adjunct beers. Whether it was, you know, I think we did a spice or vegetable, really, really good ingredient callouts, and then really bad ones. Like I don't get any of this that you mentioned. And as the brewer. Like if, if it's not there, then why why tell people it's there? I mean, I, you could say that in maybe the, the the longer description, but if the short one sentence line about the beer says that you used you know X ingredient and I can't pick it up, you're, there's going to be disappointment from the consumer's perspective. So no, for sure. You know, I've I've always said this, and I've tried to you know coach this in uh, in you know, seminars that I've led in our brewery accelerator uh, you know, events, but the power of suggestion that brewers have is really strong. Uh, and it's it's absolutely amazing if you you know triangulate against uh, you know the way the brewers write descriptions for their beers and then you read the reviews in aggregate of what people say about those beers, um, what you put on the label, what you put out there in your social media, and what you suggest to people that they're going to taste in that beer uh, plays a very significant role in what they actually taste in that beer. Definitely. And so uh, um, there really there is a very strong correlation between that and so by naming a beer that way you're you're you know implanting that correlation for people and building you know what would hopefully be a, a positive uh, you know correlation between what that expectation is and what it tastes like um, and giving them a language for for talking about what it is that they're experiencing because you know a lot of beer consumers don't necessarily have the same articulated uh, palates you know that your average you know BJCP or competition judge has and they can appreciate the fact that uh, you guide them along and, and give them some of this language to talk about that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I, I think we want to make sure that we are, you know, helping the consumer better understand why our beer is unique. And so that really, I think starts the description. So naming is, I think a big part of that too. So pastry stouts, if they're, if they don't taste like what they, like you said, if they don't taste like the, whatever you're describing as there's going to be con, not just confusion, but also disappointment. So for sure. Well, let's talk about, <laughs> speaking of disappointments. <laughs> yeah, speaking of disappointment. <laughs> There's another topic that, uh, you know, for, for you as a small brewery, you've had to, to deal with. And, uh, and that's the, the uh, challenge of having some barrel-aged beers that you've produced uh, come out and uh, develop and express infections after packaging. Right. Um, despite some of your, your best efforts to test and, uh, uh, you know, verify that uh, their spoilers weren't present in any kind of way. Uh, after packaging, you know, you've had these things happen, and it first happened with your barrel-aged Mexican achromatic stout, and you thought that was the end of it and went through it, and then you happened again with the Media Noche Reserve, and then most recently also happened again with the vanilla Media Noche release. Um, that, has to, that has to be a difficult thing for you to deal with. Yeah, you know, we, we, let's see, so we've had Midi Noche, you know, available to the market since, I guess, our one-year anniversary. So we're really not even coming up on two years of our barrel program and, um, you know, not a ton of public releases. We've done a lot of volume, a lot of draft and some crowler releases that, you know, obviously we didn't 
have a lot, nobody was claiming we had any infections in those, but they're all sure crawlers. And then moving into the bottles, our first two bottle releases were perfect. Co- uh, Coconut Mini Noche from was it 2016, and then Vanilla Mini Noche. Those bottles, I think people still open every. I don't once mean in to make while. you defensive about <laughs> this, <laughs> no. but no, no, I'm saying so. I'm no, I'm, so I'm saying we had those two, right, right? And then we move into now. I think the last three that we the last three since then were yeah. we've had issues with the barrel aged Mexican. Um, the vanilla, the most recent vanilla, and the reserve, um, both were both released at the same time. Bama was the year before that, um, so it was it was kind of tough because we, you know, starting out with our coconut vanilla releases of June of 2016, no issues, you know, very very small bottling line, um, significant adjunct additions, um, kind of like what we've been doing, uh, but no issues, and and so we had really no no cause for alarm until the Bama infection. And even that one, we had actually traced it back to the bottling line that we had been using mm. that um, was the most likely culprit. And then because we've been testing barrels, we've been testing adjuncts, you know, mostly with plating. We hadn't done any PCR testing at that point. Um, and to back up for, for folks that don't understand what we're saying about that plating, you know, you're using media, um, uh, growth media that will grow beer spoilers, typically yep. lactobacillus. Yeah, lacto, um, PDO, um, usually lactic acid bacteria for right. the most part. Um and then, of course, then there's. You know, and so CO. you take take a sample of that beer, you streak it across the plate. If stuff grows, then you try to isolate the colonies, figure out what it is, right. and, and uh, know if it's going to even. Because even if it grows, you know, you may not end up with something that's going to develop any you know off flavors over time. Um, the known beer spoilers most likely will, and we were finding that most of those were all plating clean, and so we we even had independent tests being done to plate them and and found those were clean, and and then to have issues in the bottle after the fact was you know that was tough because we had basically taken more precautions even after the bama issues we had took more precautions in our barrel program dumped more barrels you know that we either tested or knew were off ph was a good indicator for us as well sure before we go and spend the money on on plating um and so to we you know with both reserve and vanilla we traced them back to the adjuncts which was even more unfortunate because we have you know both records on um, everything we did since then, even plating those same barrels after the fact, um, they've all, you know, either PCR'd or plated. Well, after they p- uh, plated clean, they PCR'd clean. So we know it was from the adjunct. So when we say PCR, polycher- polymerase chain reaction testing, right. and this is uh, um, basically it's DNA testing. Yep. Wow. It, it just tells you, uh, it tells you if, if either, uh, and they'll usually do two separate tests, one for wild yeast um, and then one one assay for wild yeast, one assay for um, lactic acid bacteria in particular. Um, and I'm not sure how many different strains it, it's it's looking for, but it'll tell you total quantity. Okay, in, it depends on who the test provider right. is. It's it's in I guess cells per, per, per milliliter, and it'll tell you exactly what your your count is on potential either lactic acid or wild yeast. Um, so you'll know it's it's a known beer spoiler, but sure. But then but there's, there's still, still limitations on PCR, you sure. know, and some of the limitations are, you know, all any of the cost-effective PCR solutions out there on the market are going to test for still a relatively limited number of these potential spoilers. Some of the most popular spoilers, and there are still other spoilers out there Hell that, yeah. uh, you know, that are just uh, you know small-time you know folks that uh, uh, where you, you, you 
you're just not going to test for those because it's such a low likelihood of that happening. Um, you know, the other issue with PCR is that uh, uh, because it's testing for DNA, uh, it catches both live and dead. Right. And so, you know, you have to make a decision. You know, like you have to figure out, like, you know, is, is this stuff actually alive in this beer? Did the alcohol kill it all off already? And yet right. it's still floating around in there. I mean, there's there's certainly some challenges and there's no necessarily perfect way uh, in yeah. any cost effective sense no you know, to not test a, this especially stuff. not for a small brewery i mean we we're we're relying on on other breweries and and um, other labs to do our pcr testing we don't have an in-house pcr yet um we looked into it but you know it's just it's so so expensive and also not only that the running the test is expensive the you know having someone that we can have full-time being able to run that the media is expensive um, it's a very costly, but it's also a little bit more definitive than plating. We found, not absolutely definitive, but um, but like you said, you, you say complementary, complementary <laughs> for sure. I think, I and mean, we do, uh, we still do both. Um, but PCR for us at least tells us, okay, what's our risk factor before moving to the sure. next step? Whether it's going from the barrel to the bright, whether it's going from the barrel onto adjuncts, whether it's going from the bright into the bottles, or going from bottles to consumers. <coughs> So we're, um, you know, that that's where we've shifted our focus now. Instead of just, Even, you know, also the other challenge and I should have mentioned this before. The other thing with PCR is that there are certain thresholds, for uh, sure. you know, and and with all kinds of testing, there are thresholds uh, under which you will not observe, uh, you know, a positive test. And theoretically, that that threshold is set at a point where, you know, if that potential spoiler is below that threshold, it can't get a foothold. But uh, Crazy things can happen at the it's same time. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. You know, we're not we're we're talking about you know ninety seven, ninety eight percent you know likelihood. We're not ever talking about a hundred percent likelihood in some of this no, testing. Even even after pasteurization, you know, there's that's the other you know it's it's all risk management at this point because you have so many opportunities for failure, um, whether it's in the barrels or whether it's in the with the adjuncts or in the bottles, um, in, in any environment, not just a you know. A small brewery, but any brewery of any size with any, you know, whether they have mixed cultures or not, you know, any, even just a clean production facility. Obviously, we have sour barrels stored in our tap room, which are separate from our clean barrels that, you know, we're here sitting in right now. You know, we're in the barrel, we're, <laughs> we're recording in the barrel room, so we're here looking at all the Made Noche barrels and talking about infection. It's making them very uneasy. Oh, gosh. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're kind of looking down at us right now. But, but you have split out your sour we barrels. Have, we from- have. And, but then again, that's, a, that's another, it's not a definitive sure. protection, sure. but it's one, one more step, one more variable we can do to reduce the, the instances. The good news is that, you know, since now we've, we've essentially just put all the brakes on packaging Made Noche until we come up with a better recourse and, and, and really even the adjuncting, you know, it may just become that we, we can't adjunct at 45 to 50 pounds of toasted coconut in a, um, you know, in a one and a half barrel batch or, um, you know, those kinds of things. We might just have to say those are draft only. have to be only. subtle and balanced about yeah. it, Neil. Oh or maybe gosh. just only package the <laughs> non-adjunct versions. You know, I think we'll, yeah. We, yeah. we love making these ridiculously adjunct heavy laden with this big barrel character. We like complementing those two together, but... Um, you know, the classic, like the, out of all the bottles we've done lately, Medi Noche, the, the non-adjunct is the only one we haven't had issues with. Um, so that's the good news is that we know. And our, you've tested it recently and we gone have, back. Yeah, okay. we've done okay. multiple tests. We've actually sent it down, I think, now four different times, and we've done other tests with other beers. And Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that one, I, you know, I, like I said, there's nothing definitive. I can't say 100%. No one's going to experience issues with their bottles. But I can also say systematically not everyone will. That's I can say that probably with fairly high certainty. 
Whereas the other beers, you know, it's almost a, it's a crapshoot. Some of the vanilla, especially, have you come back clean? Some have not, and so now it's just a it's a guess. Reserve was probably more majority, yeah, if, um, and that was <coughs> mostly from the <coughs> the coconut. And we've learned since then we we've actually tested other coconut. We actually have a co- a coconut coffee made in Noche draft only going on taps on tap tomorrow. Yep, Jamie's got a sample of that, um, and this was actually mostly a stability test uh, hmm. batch. I mean, we wanted to. It complement the flavors. We we had uh, this is 19 months in the Woodford Rye Whiskey Barrel, <clears throat> so it's our oldest batch we've actually put out to the public. Um, so 19 months in Woodford Rye, and then we added uh, 25. This is a single barrel, so a single bourbon barrel after 19 months, probably only 45 gallons or less. Um, so we did 50, uh, 50 pounds, or no, sorry, yeah, 25 pounds of toasted coconut. Uh, we sourced from a different coconut supplier um, than we did on our reserve. And it was pre-toasted. That was the other difference. We toasted mm. the other one with a commissary kitchen for reserve. Um, this one we bought toasted from the supplier. And we also added five pounds of coffee from our local coffee um, supplier here, uh, Zoe's. So um, we PCR'd that at every stage of the process, barrel um, into the bright, into the with the adjuncts, and then into the keg. And it's all clean. So that was mainly for us to see where, you know, what are some options for us for coconut that is not necessarily going to have the high risk factor we had with the reserve. Um, and then we're going to do the same with vanilla and we're working on, you know, different vanilla sources price is one thing, but stability is a bigger concern. So we'll spend more on vanilla. We know is good versus taking a risk on some vanilla that's flavor wise might be similar, but could have, you know, a lot more vulnerability as far as micro stability. Sure. Um, so we're doing a lot of those tests now to see what adjuncts are safe and which suppliers can we trust um, because once you put the adjuncts in, there's really not, you know, there's no turning back. So it's, it's going into the beer. It's whether or not that beer goes to the public or leaves the tap room. That's the other al- alternative. I think that's a, that's an interesting piece that, uh, you know, the folks may not have as much understanding about as they pro- as they probably should, that, uh, um, what we're talking about in terms of infection developing is being able to be confident in the beer, uh, even when it's warm stored and, you know, on the bottom shelf, of, you know, in somebody's basement, uh, versus being able to, you know, uh, as you serve it out of the tap room, being able to keep it at uh, 34, 36 degrees consistently. Um, there is a temperature factor that does inhibit the growth of a lot of these, you know, beer spoiler uh, lactic acid bacteria. For sure. And so if you keep it in your cooler, um, even if it is, does have some signs of infection, you can, you know, make sure that uh, it's never going to be experienced in that way. When we say infection, like this is not something that's going to make you sick. No, like this stuff is is all perfectly healthy in terms of food safety. It's, it's uh, not going to you make know, your you consume these things, same things in right. sour beer all the time. Yep. Um, you know, we, we use the term infection, but it's really kind of a misnomer because it's not going to flavor yeah, development. Right, it's just unintentional flavors there. Right. And if you store that in your cooler, and and even if the, some of those things are there, you can make sure that those off flavors aren't expressing themselves, and you can be confident in the beer that you're serving to people out of your tap room um, when you package that you have to have an extra level of confidence in that that uh, it can actually sit in a bottle and and be good uh, over any time frame that you want to guarantee your consumers whether that's three months or six months or you know four years for that matter yeah and i think i mean i think that's the hard part too is a consumer you can't fault a consumer for wanting to be able to sell her a beer they spent 25 30 45 55 dollars a bottle on so um, you know, there's not that, I, I, I certainly understand like that, 
like I, I don't want to have to drink this within three weeks. I didn't spend you know fifty five dollars on a bottle that I have to drink you know right away. I want to save it for an occasion. So I understand that for sure. I mean, from a from the brewery's that fifty five dollar bottle of vanilla that I bought, uh, <laughs> you, you may see a. Uh, <laughs> A, uh, a replacement claim for me on that. Did you open it yet or not yet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we had, I mean, we have, I had to because you <laughs> yeah, know, you have to get your claim. Science, in. Right. But we have, um, you know, we had a lot of, you know, people wanting to sit on those bottles, which I understand. I mean, from a flavor perspective, they're probably not going to improve, but they're just, you're waiting for the occasion. So if you're cellaring for an occasion, that makes sense. If you're cellaring for, for change, you know, it's not likely you're going to see a lot of improvement. I mean, especially after 19 months in a barrel or 18 months or 17 months, you know, that beer, even on the adjuncts, we're using so much coconut and vanilla to keep that beer as, you know, that those flavors as prominent as possible in months, you know, they're two months, they're going to fade off. What shouldn't happen is obviously that the flavor should change. It's just, or should develop new flavors. It should just maybe mellow out on some of the adjuncts. So, you know, cellaring, I think is just the nature of anyone buying these bottles. Um, I think, like you said, it's just figuring out when. Wait, on that subject, what I love about the folks that are that, that seller these days, or they they get a beer like, oh, it's so hot right now. We need to wait a year on this. Um, at the same time, body is such an important thing, you know, in big stouts these days, uh, and that's the first thing to go for sure uh, as time marches on in these beers. The first thing that happens, you know, is that that body starts thinning out. Yeah, you see some uh, changing and, and so there. you would you would expect that folks that really understood how these beers change over time, if body matters that much, do you drink drink it fresh? Right. Yeah, especially I mean, especially a barrel aged beer that's maybe even non adjuncted that's spend seventeen months in the barrel. I mean, you're gonna want to see how it changes, but it's not gonna improve. It's gonna change, but it's not gonna get better. It's not gonna magically. So you know, that's I think that's always the tough part is that managing consumer expectation. Like if if you don't like this beer now fresh, you probably shouldn't buy a bottle. But the infections are a whole separate discussion. So I think moving forward, we're pretty much now at the point. I mean, there's no way we can put out a bottle that's definitively not going to go bad. There's no way to do that 100%. It just means that we can ensure we've done everything we can at this point, even using, you know, resources we don't have on site to ensure that those bottles have the least likely, you know, you know, lowest likelihood of, of changing or, or developing off flavors. Um, so that's for us right now, it's, it's relying mostly on PCR at multiple stages and plating. So combination of the two, but like you said, that's not even a hundred percent because of those are both selecting for known beer spoilers. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I know that others and, have know, found and, and new we, beer yeah, spoilers right. we, from those we, processes. We say known beer spoilers, but uh, you know the the spoiler that uh, that killed Bourbon County 2015 was not on those it, assays. It was not on any of those no. assays. You know, no. it was something that you know, even with the best intentions, uh, you weren't going to find this strange lactobacillus strain that I, uh, you know originated or was originally found in you know sake. I, th- uh, I think it was a 12 or 13 day. Uh, plating like it wouldn't show up on plates for right. more than almost two weeks yeah which is fairly unheard of and i mean anybody any lab you send that to is going to tell you yeah this beer plate's clean but it's you know you're not waiting two weeks you're waiting three three days you know i i look at this almost like an arms race you know brewers are doing things that they've never done before in the history of beer we're brewing bigger beers uh we're you know adding more and more things to those big beers uh, you know that hit, that historical logic of if it's this big and, and this much alcohol, nothing can live in it, uh, made sense for a while. Uh, but we're talking about living organisms here, and natural selection happens. Uh, things you know grow and change, and you know if you uh, uh, you know you can think that you've created an environment where those things can't live and thrive, and yet 
you know, life finds a way. Oh, for um, sure. You know, these organisms are finding ways, and they're naturally selecting themselves out to uh, to be able to survive and thrive in some of these environments that they've never been able to before. And so, um, you know, in some ways, this is just something that the brewing industry has to stay vigilant on uh, and keep looking for and keep developing new ways. Because uh, for every good defense that the brewing industry comes up with, uh, you know, a lot of these organisms they're gonna they're gonna find their own offensive way to continue to grow and thrive. Yeah, and I mean, I think every brewery just needs to figure out where their their risk threshold is, and you know, we were on the a much higher risk than your average barrel program because we just are brewing massive, massive beer, not just in gravity or not just in in, in alcohol, but also in gravity. I mean, we're we've shifted Made in Ocha to even a little bit higher gravity, even though it's not fermenting that it's not attenuating much further. It's just more body. It's more residual sweetness to last 18 months in the barrel versus when we originally designed the recipe, it was meant for 12 months. So, you know, our average length in the barrel, we're just basically saying, give it as long as it needs. And if it needs 20 months, it needs 20 months. If it needs 10 months, it needs 10 months. But there's a very big difference in how that beer changes from 10 months to 20 months. So you have to factor that into your recipe. So our starting gravity on, on Midi Noche is close to 33, 34 Play-Doh now, which means it finishes at anywhere from 10 to even as high as 15 Play-Doh. It's a lot of extra sugar sitting around in these barrels for 18, 19 months that any critter would love to just, you know, whether it's lactic acid bacteria or even wild yeast, it's a lot, a lot of sugar that's not pasteurized. There's a lot of, of risk. So we, we just have figured out what's our, what's the way we can mitigate our risk as much as possible. But really the best way would be to make it, you know, finish a lot lower and, and cut a lot of sweetness, but we know it's going to make a different beer. So, you know, for us, it just means we're always going to be kind of running on the higher end of risk, but we either need to figure out a, a different process for packaging it, whether it means, you know, even pasteurizing is not going to be the final solution that that might be something we look into down the road. If we're a little bit bigger, um, it's like one more step, but if it's at the cost of flavor, if, you know, if we have any fa- flavor degradation, especially in our adjunct stouts, probably won't opt for that either. So it's, I think every brewer just needs to evaluate what's our model, what's our goal for us. It's, it's making just a beer that challenges even a style, a style as established as barely stouts. Like we've been influenced by some of the best, but we also can see, like, I feel like there's a lot of room for expressing more barrel character but with that you need more balance from the base beer i think that's it was really interesting to see the gabf results this year this is the first time i've seen two of the biggest i think you know maman and medianoche i think are two of the bigger as far as body goes and just sweetness bigger barrel aged stouts available that you know to win a medal at the or to win the gold and silver i think it says a lot about the judges too how they're changing because a lot of times our especially classic brewers hated most about those beers they're just too big they're either too boozy too barrel too much sweetness too much whatever and i think the combination of both the bigger body and more sweetness a little bit more alcohol and more time in the barrel kind of balances those out so there's still balance to those but you can't do that you can't put uh you know a beer that finishes at seven play-doh or or, or even six play-doh you can't put that in a barrel for 25 months and expect there to still be base beer left you know there's got to be something to hold up to all that extraction all that time in oak even some oxidation that's the other thing is we get a lot of oxidation over 20 months or so yeah yeah um so all those things all that's to say that we run a high risk. That's our. It's a high risk barrel program. There's no, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts. Like, and then on top of that, when we take these massively sweet finishing gravity beers, high finishing gravity beers, and then throw, you know, whatever, how many ever pounds per barrel of vanilla or coconut or whatever it is into the tank before we package it, it's another area that we add more risk. Um, but it also means we're we're not going to abandon that. We're just going to figure out either one, we can't package it as 
we intended. And so we have to figure out a different way to deliver it to hopefully people just drink it on draft or, you know, <laughs> so if that's it, why you, you put those on tap in your tap room instead, that's, of, that instead was, of packaging. The plan it. was, you know, if we have a barrel that's going to, that basically if we hit at any point in the process, we could still serve the beer. Um, fortunately, since we started testing, we've had the opposite problem. We've well, we keep testing these adjuncts and they're all coming back clean. I wish we had packaged that beer, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but it's still fun to put them on draft. But that's the other option is that, you know, if you have a hit, just because you bottled it doesn't mean that it has to all go down the drain. There's a lot of potential. Like you said, we have cases of Medi Noche Reserve in the cold room that have been there the whole time, still drink fantastic. So every once in a while, we'll put them out on the list, and you know they're on-premise only. And I think that's a great option, too, for brewers that are going to have a, an issue with that. It's not just I have to eat the cost of whatever, you know, a couple thousand, I mean, probably close to $20,000 worth of beer that if you're already packaged and then you have a hit, let's say you have an issue on the bottling day, which is, you know, a high culprit for us as well on the vanilla. That was our very first run on our Mahine. Um, so that vanilla res- uh, reserve were both packaged on the same day. So we know for sure the numbers are different. So there's a different level of um, basically <clears throat> lactic acid bacteria in both those bottles. So we could say it was the bottling day, but that doesn't really account for the discrepancy between the two that's where the coconut i think comes into play and maybe even the vanilla we've had some vanilla tests just straight vanilla hmm. um, tinctures we've done to, to test to see if our vanilla is clean and had some issues there too but i think it was all those floating chunks of could, coconut could be the extra gave, coconut it just gave uh, all that lactic acid <laughs> yeah there was, bacteria there was no question we used a lot of real coconut um, but we ran a higher risk so I think moving forward, we're just going to wait until we're absolutely confident as much as we can now with even more resources. We've said that before, so I understand people's hesitations. But, you know, we're with all the resources we have available and really the resources the industry has, we're, we're using basically the same metrics that almost any large brewery would minus pasteurization. That's the only thing we're not utilizing. With that much confidence, we'll put beer out in bottles to the public. But until we're confident in that, it'll either not get released or it'll – um, you know, stay in the tap room until we're sur- sure about it, or um, we'll come up with other solutions. Another option, you know, might be if you're packaging to uh, to limit your risk on that with a guaranteed until, yeah. or a, you know, a time limit, a drink before. Um, you know, because with some of these beers, it seems like a longer time in the bottle has led to to more of this uh, this problem. And certainly, people's storage, the way they store it, I mean, that, that's up to them. It's packaged beer; they should be able to store it the way they want to, uh, even if those conditions do impact the way that those things develop. Up. But if you you put a three month or a six month time limit on it, and that's your guarantee, I mean, is that something you've considered? Yeah, I mean, I think if let's say you know, for example, their next adjunct, we do a couple hundred bottles, and they end up hitting on PCR later after they've sat for a bit in the bottles, and we have a hit wherever in the process. I think we could have a, a very feasible option of saying, hey, this beer is likely not changing in seventy days. We'll, we'll charge a certain price for it, which will obviously be discounted, but you got to drink it, and there's no guarantee. You know, there, right, after right. that point. It's it's your own risk. We'll probably I, I'm guessing we won't go that route. It's it's for us. Um, even talking to Corey King up at um, Big Beers this year, he had a really good point that if you know if you put it out in the bottle or put it in the bottle and, and put it out to the public, it's really on the brewery to make sure that it's it's ready to to sit sure. in, in the harshest environment that yeah, yeah. you can imagine. Which I, I totally agree with him. Um, you know, it's it's not it shouldn't be the consumer. Well, a lot of his stouts <laughs> are just sold straight over the bar yeah. at his at his brewery. And yeah. you know, a lot of them are. I think you know, and a lot of that's even just the demand trying to curb a little bit of the yeah. secondary, just to make sure it gets into the hands of the people who want to drink it. But you know, the, if you put if you if you put any beer into a bottle, there's going to be the tendency is going to be to store it. So um, you know, even putting it in a crowler, there was a little different you know. Uh, but a different way people treated those. They didn't treat them as something you should put on your shelf at 65 degrees or 60 degrees even, or even 50 degrees. They, they put them in the, in the 
fridge. Right. So, I mean, I think that's another option for us is just, hey, this is a draft only that we're putting in a crowler again. And, you know, there's no guarantee on it. Just just drink it. It's it's good right now. Um, but I think we're, we're leaning more towards so start crawling your barrel. We're going back to again. crawlers. Wow. 32 ounces of Midi Noche. <laughs> Um, no, I think I think the most likely for us is just to, to if we put it in a bottle and we release it across the bar. If yeah. it walks out of the tap room, you should be able to hold on to it. So, I mean, up until now, we've basically guaranteed that. And if it doesn't happen, then we will replace it. You know, with Bama, we did a refund because we didn't have anything coming out for you know almost eighteen months, I guess, um, or fourteen months, I guess, from that release. And so, for us moving forward, now it's. Um, if we if it leaves the tap room, we need to do everything we can to make sure it's passes all that. Um, but it doesn't mean we'll probably take a little bit of a longer break just to make sure we have everything dialed in before we put another bottle out to the public. Fair enough, fair enough. I don't want to end on that subject, so let's talk <laughs> about something a little more fun. Yeah, uh, you've you've started dabbling in uh, pilsners. I shouldn't say dabble. You've won a, a bronze world cup, a world beer cup uh, award for a Vienna Lager. And as of late, you uh, you brewed a uh, Keller Mexican lager yeah. and now have a, a Keller Pilsner on tap. Um, where'd the lager thing come from? And uh, what, what's driven your excitement in that? I mean, here you are known for hazy IPAs and big barrel-aged beers and pastry stouts. But uh, are these just uh, labors of love? Or, or do you see real legs to the, the whole uh, lager approach for craft brewers? You know, as much as I want. 2018 to be the year that lager is just like the the go-to skew and or brand for everyone i i don't know that the consumers are moving that quickly towards it obviously pilsner is probably the most popular style amongst brewers um any any brewer anywhere in the world i think no matter what festival you're at no matter what group you're at you're you're always looking for the law the pretty you know well-executed pilsner um but I, I think mostly for us, it's about what our brewers want to drink during their shift or what they want to take home and drink. You know, I, not that there's fatigue, but I think at some point you can only drink so many <laughs> really massively, almost, uh, you know, ag- aggressively or uh, irresponsibly hopped IPAs um, or adjunct stouts or, you know, all those things. You, I mean, everybody wants a beer you can just drink no matter what, whether it's with dinner or with nothing. You just want to drink it, you know, after your shift or if you want to drink it before bed like there needs to be something that can you, you you don't need an occasion just to drink this beer and i think that's where lager comes in for me um vienna lager i you know i love the style i negro modelo you know they're you know and, and even dos Equis amber were really the most popular vienna lagers in the u.s for a long time because we you know the, the vienna the the austrians the vienna lagers were you know they had all migrated and stopped making it i mean i think the 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 rise of German lager really curbed what was happening in Austria. And so our best, our best examples were, you know, the Mexican Vienna lagers for a long time. So I was really, I gra- Sam Adams. and then, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then since then, you know, since the American brewing, I think Sam Adams, Boston lager was the best American version, but even that, I think straight even more than, than say Dos Equis or Negro sure, Modelo, which, sure. which even strayed a lot from Austrian roots of, of that style. Um, and so, I love that style a lot. And so I mean, when we were talking about doing something different here, uh, was it, I guess, almost two years ago, um, it was just a style that, you know, I didn't see a lot on the shelf. And, hey, let's just try our own take on it. it was a, Ours is a bit, you know, Puesta del Sol was a bit more of a halfway point between the Mexican drier kind of crisper versions and a bit more the malt-focused Austrian versions. It was kind of right halfway in between. And then to win a, a World Beer Cup bronze with it in the, Aust- in the Vienna category was – really neat especially because that was our first batch that we brewed my first lager actually because 
you know, I didn't have a. That, a, that was the first lager you brewed. First lager. You won a World Beer Cup medal. Yeah. For. Yeah. So, but, oh, but then geez. we haven't won since then with that. So, <laughs> you know, I, maybe I just, I can only enter styles one the oh, first time I make them. And okay, after that, okay. I, they lose all their luck. Um, but it was like, see a field beer <laughs> from you this year. Yeah, maybe field beer. Um, we, we, I didn't have any fermentation control at home, so I couldn't do yeah, lagers at home, sure. but I've always loved the idea of, of, of giving a beer more time without, you know, and that's from a production perspective, it's a terrible decision for us because it takes longer than almost every beer and it sells for way less. You know, we can't charge the same. We can't give it sure, the tank sure. premium that we do on IPAs. Um, but we, I think we're just committed to making styles we love, and that's that. I think fits that ethos for us. So it's Keller Pills. We'll probably do a, a more kind of summery pills this summer. Um, we'll probably even bring in some, <clears throat> excuse me, some other kind of medium to to darker lagers, maybe box down the road. Or um, our 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 production team. They, I mean, I think the Keller Pills and the Grisette are probably the two favorite beers we've done in the last two months, just because it's something that you can drink you know, end of the day, maybe even at lunch and, and not be totally, you know, either palate wrecked from, you know, even our minor bitterness. But, um, I think we're, I, that's so those, our, those are the beers you brew for you, not necessarily for the, for the right. customers. Uh, we, if customers yeah, we, like them, then great. But. That's kind of, yeah. I mean, we're willing to justify slower sales. I mean, the, the Keller pills and the Grisette are probably our two slowest moving beers we've done in the last, you know, three or four months. Um, and, and it's just not where the consumers are. And it's also not our niche. So, you know, it's one thing for another brewery to make them and, and do well, but nobody knows well works for loggers. So it's not, it's not, under, it's not, I'm not completely like, you know, dumbfounded by the fact that we, we won't sell through a ton of Grisette or, or Keller Pills or even some of the other classic styles we do. It's just not what people know us for. But sure, we sure. also want to give people a sense that we don't just, we're not a one trick pony. You know, we don't just make barrel aged stouts or New England style IPAs or pastry stouts. <laughs> or now I guess we have a lot of, or a, or a wheat beer that you know, we want to meddle with. We can do other things too. There so, you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, fantastic. Neil, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Thanks this for having me. This episode has been brought to you by craftbeer.com home of the most mouth-watering map in the world, the map of U.S. breweries. If you find yourself in a new city and want to sample the local flavors, or if you just want to marvel at the vast American beer landscape, visit craftbeer.com. I imagine that map, uh, if you were to search for Greeley, would uh, lead you to Weldworks and Wiley Roots and a couple of others. Um, uh, so if you do check out that map, uh, make sure to put Greeley on your own personal map. Neil, thanks so much for talking with thanks us. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, and if you want to learn more, Craft Beer uh, and Brewing Magazine can be found on the web at beerandbrewing.com. We'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast. We'd love even more if you subscribe to the magazine. And if you do so, from time to time, you'll get to read articles written by my guest here, uh, Neil Fisher from Weldworks Brewing. Thanks so much, Neil. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew. 